on the dark side of twilight when we arrived at Beastritz on the borders of three states, Transylvania, Moldavia, and Bukovina, in the midst of the Carpathian Mountains, one of the wildest and least known portions of Europe. Count Dracula had directed me to go to the Golden Krona Hotel, and here I was welcomed by a cheery-looking elderly woman in peasant dress. Welcome, welcome. She called to her husband. Yeah, who presently handed me a letter which read, My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. At three tomorrow afternoon, the coach for Bukovina will carry you to the Borgo Pass, where my carriage will await you and bring you to Castle Dracula. I trust your journey from London has been a happy one. Your friend, Dracula. Fourth of May. I asked the landlord this morning if he knew Count Dracula. Both he and his wife crossed themselves in fear and refused to say a word. Before I left in the afternoon, the good lady came to my room weeping. Oh, must you go, young sir? Oh, must you go? Oh, yes, I'm afraid I must. Do you know where you go and what you are going to? I implore you, I implore you not to go. She went down on her knees and would not be comforted. 
But realizing my determination at last, she sadly hung some beads attached to a crucifix around my neck and said goodbye. Goodbye, young sir, and God keep you. By now, the coach had arrived, and a great crowd assembled round the front door, all crying out and wailing. An old peasant handed me garlic, another mountain ash. A young woman gave me a wild rose. Then everyone made the sign of the cross and pointed two fingers at me, for a protection, I was told later, against the evil eye. It was unnerving. Yet they seemed so kind-hearted, so sorrowful and so sympathetic, I could not but be touched. We set off on the road towards Bukovina. Darkness had fallen by the time we came to the Borgo Pass, and there were ominous rolling clouds overhead, and in the air, the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. All at once, a carriage with four horses drew up beside our coach. The passengers cried out in terror. But the driver seemed some ghostly figure from the dead, tall with a great black hat which hid his face so that only his eyes were seen, and they gleamed red in the lamplight. He called out, Give me the Englishman's luggage. I descended from the coach and entered the carriage and soon we were swept into the darkness of the past. I felt a strange chill, and a lonely feeling came over me. I heard the howling of wolves. It grew colder and colder still, and a fine powdery snow began to fall. I grew dreadfully afraid. The baying of the wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though they were closing in on us from every side. Suddenly, on our left, I saw a weird blue flame, and the coachman checked the horses and disappeared in its direction. As he moved away, it seemed that he was actually transparent to its flickering light. I waited, and the moon, sailing through the black clouds, appeared behind the jagged crest of a beetling pine-clad rock, and by its light... I saw a ring of wolves with white teeth and lolling red tongues who howled as though the moon had some peculiar effect on them. The horses reared and screamed. I shouted for the coachman. Then I heard his voice. Go back, go back, home to your lairs. He stood in the roadway, waving his long arms imperiously, and at his command, the wolves fell back. heavy cloud passed across the face of the moon, and in pitch darkness, we went on our way. After an interminable time, we abruptly drew to a halt in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle, from whose tall black windows came no ray of light. Jonathan Harker was a solicitor's clerk, sent out by his firm in Exeter to discuss with Count Dracula his recent purchase of an estate in England. Before leaving home, Jonathan had received word that his final law examination had been successful and that he was now a full-blown solicitor. He longed to talk it all over with his fiancée. She was a Miss Mina Murray of Whitby and make plans for their wedding. Yet here he was, standing at midnight, on the steps of a grim castle in Transylvania. The carriage had driven away into the shadows. It all seemed like a horrible nightmare. At last, there came the sound of rattling chains and massive bolts being drawn back. A key was turned, and the great door creaked open. <laughs> 
Within there stood a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. A high-bridged nose and arched nostrils and a mouth fixed and cruel-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. His hands were surprisingly coarse, with the fingernails long and cut to a point. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Harker, to my house. Let me see to your comfort myself. It is late and my people are not available. He insisted on carrying the luggage in and led the way up a winding stone stair and along a passage at the end of which he threw open a door. They entered a well-lit room where a table was spread for supper before a mighty hearth on which huge logs flamed and flared. I pray you be seated and eat your fill. You will, I trust, excuse me that I do not join you, but I have dined already. Jonathan handed him a sealed letter from Mr. Hawkins, the solicitor for whom he worked, and then ate a hearty meal, washed down with a bottle of old Tokai. As the Count read the letter, there seemed a strange stillness over everything. Then wolves howled in the valley. Listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. But you must be tired, Mr. Harker. Sleep well and dream well. He bowed courteously and departed. Jonathan Harker's journal continues. I seemed only to have slept a few hours, but I could not sleep any more, so I got up. The sun had not risen and it was barely light. I hung up my shaving mirror by the window. There was no other mirror in the room and was beginning to shave when suddenly I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard the Count's voice saying, Good morning. I started, for it amazed me that I had not seen him. The reflection in the shaving glass covered the whole room behind me. No, there was no mistake. I looked again. There was no reflection of him in the mirror. I saw that I had cut myself slightly and the blood was trickling over my chin. When the Count saw this, his eyes blazed with a sort of demoniac fury, and he violently made a grab at my throat. As I drew back quickly, his hand touched the crucifix which I had been given at Beestritz. It made an instant change in him, and he said calmly, Take care how you cut yourself. In this country it can be more dangerous than you think. This wretched shaving glass is the cause of all the mischief. Foul bauble of man's vanity! Away with it! Angrily, he opened the heavy window and flung out the mirror, which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard below. Then, he withdrew without a word. This castle is on the edge of a precipice. As far as the eye can reach is a sea of green treetops, and here and there are silver threads where the rivers wind in deep gorges through the forest. Exploring the rooms and passages inside the castle, in the absence of the Count, I find doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all of them locked and bolted. In no place save from the windows is there any available exit. I am a prisoner. 
After some days, Jonathan Harker discovered that there were no servants in the castle. Even the driver of the carriage must have been none other than the Count himself. He noticed, too, that he never saw the Count eat anything, nor did he ever see him between sunrise and sunset. One night, as he pondered these things, looking out over the moonlit valley, Jonathan's eye was caught by a movement below him and somewhere to the left. He saw, to his horror, the figure of Dracula emerge from a window and crawl face downwards over the outer castle wall and descend with considerable speed, spreading out his cloak like great wings. Then, as if he were a lizard, disappear into some dark aperture. Once recovered from the shock of this, Jonathan determined to search the Count's room, now that he was no longer there, to find perhaps some key that might effect a quick escape. On the floor below his, he was able to force open a locked door. He found himself in an old-fashioned room that seemed to hold some air of comfort in it. He sat down and sensed the loneliness, the dusty atmosphere of faded charm. A soft quietude stole over him. 16th of May. I continue my journal, if only to preserve my sanity. Last night in that strange room, I must have slept. I hope so, but I fear it was not all sleep. I found I was not alone. Three young women stood in the moonlight, and they cast no shadow. Two were dark and one fair. Their hard, piercing eyes were fixed on me. They whispered together and laughed. Go on. You are the first. We follow. He is young and strong. There are kisses for all. The fair one bent over me, and she licked her lips like an animal. I felt the hard dents of two sharp teeth on my throat. At that instant, Count Dracula was in the room. Never did I imagine such wrath and fury. His eyes were blazing as if the flames of hellfire were in them. With a fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the women back. How dare you touch him? How dare you cast eyes on him when I had forbidden it? Go, go! <laughs> they laughed and seemed to fade into the rays of the moon and pass through the window. I could see the dim, shadowy forms for a moment before they vanished. Then the horror overcame me, and I sank back unconscious. He awoke in his own bed. The Count made no reference to the event. Some gypsies had encamped in the courtyard, and Jonathan attempted to smuggle by them a letter to his fiancée, but they returned it to Dracula, who then told him that he must write her three letters and date them June the 12th, June the 19th, and June the 29th, each one saying that his work was delayed and that he would be home soon. Unwillingly, he complied. It was his only hope. But the thought of staying more than a month longer filled him with terror. The night of June the 29th came, and Count Dracula opened the front door and told him, You are free to go. Free? 
but immediately a horde of howling wolves leapt to the threshold, held at bay only by the gaunt, mocking presence of the Count. Jonathan returned in great fear to his room. Some hours after midnight, he heard whispering outside his door, and then the voice of Dracula. Back, back to your own place. Your time is not yet. Wait, wait. Have patience. Tomorrow night, tomorrow night is yours. 30th of June. These may be the last words I ever write. I slept till dawn, and when I woke, I knelt and prayed, determined that if death came, I would be ready. The cock crew, and I felt safe. I waited until sunrise, and confident now that the Count slept when others waked, and that he would not be abroad until sunset, I climbed out onto the narrow ledge that ran round the building, intending to enter the window from which I had seen him previously emerge. I carefully worked my way round and down, not daring to look at the depths below me, and at last reached my objective. The room was empty. At one corner there was a heavy door which I was able to open. It led to a circular stairway which I descended and came to a dark, tunnel-like passage through which came a deathly, sickly odour. Another door opened into an old ruined chapel which seemed like some kind of graveyard, for there were fifty or so great wooden boxes or coffins filled with earth and lying open. And in one of these lay Count Dracula. He looked as if his youth had been half renewed. The white hair and moustache were changed to dark iron grey. The cheeks were fuller, the mouth redder than ever, for on the lips were gouts of fresh blood which oozed from the corners of his mouth. He lay like some filthy leech, exhausted with his repletion. I shuddered as I bent over to touch him. I had to find the key, but there was no sign of it. A terrible desire came upon me to rid the world of this monster. I seized a shovel and, lifting it high, struck with the edge downward at the hateful face. The head turned, and the eyes fell upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The shovel glanced from his face, merely leaving a deep gash on the forehead. Then the lid of the box fell over and hid the horrid thing from my sight. I ran from the place and gained the Count's room. I stopped breathless and heard voices and the sound of tramping feet, then hammering. It was the box being nailed down. In the courtyard soon, then down the rocky way, I heard the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips, and the song of gypsies as they passed into the distance. I, Mina Murray, begin this journal on the 8th of August. What has happened to my beloved Jonathan? Three short letters telling me little, and now nothing for more than a month. There have been disquieting events here at Whitby. A great storm and a derelict ship driven into harbour with a dead man at the helm, a crucifix in his hand, and no living thing on board but a large dog who disappeared into the town. And my dear friend Lucy Westenra, so gay and high-spirited, she has just become engaged to the Honourable Arthur Homewood, son of Lord Godalming, suddenly struck down with some inexplicable sickness, a prey to terrible dreams and sleepwalking. 
One night I had to drag her back from the very edge of the steep cliff overlooking the sea. There are curious marks upon her neck. Two transfusions of blood have been given her, from her fiancé and from her friend, Dr. Seward, who attends her. Unable to diagnose her illness, he sent for his former teacher, Professor Van Helsing of Amsterdam, who came at once to examine her. Both physicians are with her now. I can hear their voices. These flowers are for you, Miss Lucy. Oh, Professor, you're making fun of me. These are only common garlic. No trifling, please. I do not jest. There is much virtue in these so common flowers. See, I place them here. And I myself make for you this wreath to wear. But why should I? Is this some spell you're working? Perhaps. Keep the window closed. Above all, do not disturb the wreath. Extract from Dr. Seawood's diary. The 13th of September. Van Helsing and I paid another visit to Lucy today. And her mother warmly greeted us. You'll be glad to know she's much better. The dear child's asleep, we won't disturb her. Oh, last night the room was so stuffy with those horrible, strong-smelling flowers everywhere. She actually had a bunch of them round her neck. I just took them all away and opened a window to let in a little fresh air. She wandered off into another room. I saw that the professor had turned ashen grey. <gasps> what have we done that all the powers of the devil are against us? The poor, poor child. But we must act. We must fight. We went to her room and saw the awful waxen pallor of her face. Memorandum left by Lucy Westenra, 17th of September. I feel I am dying of weakness and have barely strength to write. Last night, I was waked by something flapping at the window. I cried out, Is anybody there? Seemed to be a large bat beating at the panes. I heard a howl like a dog's, but more fierce and deeper. My mother came in and lay beside me. Suddenly, there was a crash of glass. The window blind blew back with the rush of wind into the room. In the aperture of the broken panes, there was the head of a great gaunt grey wolf. My mother screamed. Touching anything that might help her seize the wreath of flowers from my neck. There came a strange and horrible gurgling in her throat. She fell over as if struck by lightning. Her head hit mine, and I remember no more. When I recovered consciousness, it was still night. A bell was tolling. And all the dogs in the neighborhood were howling. Where are the servants? What am I to do? I am alone with the dead. I dare not go out, for I can hear the low howl of the wolf. The air seems full of specks, floating and circling. And the lights burn blue and dim. Goodbye, dear Arthur, if I should not survive this night. God keep you, dear, and God help me. Dr. Seawood's diary, the 19th of September. Yesterday morning, we found Mrs. Westerner lying dead, and by her side, Lucy, her face pale and haggard, with two little wounds on her bare throat. The professor cried out, It is not yet too late. 
quick, quick, the brandy. Downstairs, I found the four maids of the house unconscious. Apparently, they had been drugged. I managed to wake them, but they sobbed hysterically and were not able to be of much help. Lucy gradually revived. Another blood transfusion was necessary. She slept peacefully all day, and we kept watch in turn by her bedside. Her fiancé, Arthur Homewood, arrived, already upset owing to the sudden death of his father, Lord Godalming. This new grief was almost too much for him, and Van Helsing insisted that he rest. From midnight I sat with her. She lay quite still, breathing heavily, the chaplet of garlic round her neck. Her mouth was open, and her teeth in the dim, uncertain light seemed longer and sharper than they had been in the morning. In particular, the canine teeth looked longer and sharper than the rest. She moved uneasily. There came a dull buffeting at the window, and I went over and peered out. There was full moonlight, and I could see a great bat wheeling round and round. At six o'clock, Van Helsing came to relieve me. When he saw Lucy's face, he said urgently, Draw the blind! I want light! Then he bent down and examined her closely. Mein Gott! She is dying! Go wake her fiancé! Let him see the last! I went to the dining room and told him as gently as I could that the end was near. When we came to Lucy's room, she opened her eyes and whispered softly, Arthur, oh my love, I am so glad you have come. He stooped to kiss her, but Van Helsing motioned him back. No, 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 not yet. Hold her hand. It will comfort her more. So Arthur took her hand and knelt beside her. And gradually she fell asleep, breathing regularly like a tired child. Then insensibly there came a change. Her breathing grew rough and heavy. The mouth opened, and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look longer and sharper than ever. She opened her eyes. They were dull and hard. And in a voice deep and voluptuous, not like her own, she said, Arthur, oh, my love, I am so glad you have come. Kiss me. He bent over eagerly. Immediately Van Helsing dragged him back with a fury of strength which I never thought he could have possessed and hurled him almost across the room, crying out, Not for your life, not for your living soul and hers. And he stood between them like a lion at bay. A spasm of rage passed like a shadow over Lucy's face. Then her eyes closed. Very shortly after, she opened her eyes again in all their true softness and took Van Helsing's hand in hers and kissed it. My true friend, my true friend and his. Oh, guard him and give him peace. I swear it. Come, Arthur, take her hand in yours and kiss her on the forehead only once. Their eyes met instead of their lips and so they parted. Then she fell asleep. Soon her breathing became rough and heavy again. And all at once it ceased. It is all over. She is dead. Ah, well, poor girl. There is peace for her at last. It is the end. Not so. Alas, not so. It is only the beginning.
this time, Mina Murray was in Budapest. She had received an urgent letter from the Mother Superior of St Joseph's Hospital there that Jonathan was in their care, suffering from brain fever. Immediately she went to him. Of his experiences he would say nothing, except that he had recorded them in a journal, which he would not allow her to read, and that he had escaped from Castle Dracula at great peril by climbing down the outer wall. He seemed now to have recovered, and he and Mina were happily married at his bedside in the hospital. Mina Harker's Journal The 22nd of September, Jonathan received word that he had been made partner in his Exeter firm of solicitors owing to the decease of Mr Hawkins. We hurried home, and in London, with an hour or two to spare before leaving for the West Country, we walked a while in Hyde Park. Suddenly, Jonathan turned pale and pointed to a tall man with a black moustache and beard. A cruel, hard-looking man with sharp white teeth. Jonathan whispered, It is he, the man himself, Count Dracula. But he has grown young. Oh, God, if this be so, if this be so. Jonathan was so distressed, I drew him away quickly. It was nearly time to catch our train, so we collected our baggage at the hotel and took a cab to the station. I pray that Jonathan may not have a relapse. He is so upset. The time is come, I fear, when I must open the parcel that contains his journal. Oh, Jonathan, forgive me, but it is for your own dear sake. Later, a sad homecoming. A telegram from Van Helsing, whoever he may be. You will be grieved to hear that Mrs. Westenra died five days ago and that Lucy died the day before yesterday. They were both buried today. Lucy, my dear. The 24th of September. Professor Van Helsing came to Exeter today to learn of any details of Lucy's illness that might render a clue to the mystery of her death. He is a most wonderful man. Jonathan was away for a few days on business, but I had by now read his disquieting and terrifying journal and typed out a copy of it. I gave this to the professor. Thank you, Mrs. Harper. He eagerly studied it. My dear, these experiences, strange and terrible as they are, are all true. Have no fears about your husband's sanity. His brain and heart are sound. He is a courageous man. I am blessed that I have seen you. My husband thinks that he saw Count Dracula in London. Uh, so, so... I must return at once. While we were talking later at the station, his eye caught an item in the Westminster Gazette, which I had procured for him. He read intently, then groaned. Mm, mein Gott! So soon! So soon! Dr. Seawood's diary continued. The 25th of September. The professor returned from Exeter last night and showed me a newspaper report about a missing child who had eventually been found in a totally exhausted state and wounded, with two small marks on the throat as if bitten by a rat or a dog. He said to me with some concern, What do you make of it? They're the same wounds as poor Lucy's. Have you no suspicion of the cause? None. You do not let your eyes see nor your ears hear. Have you not read that in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang on the trees all day like giant nuts or pods 
and then at night flit down on sleeping men and women who in the morning are found dead, white, even as Miss Lucy was. Good heavens, Professor. Do you mean that Lucy was bitten by such a bat? Would you think that those small holes in the children's throats were made by the same cause that injured Lucy? I suppose so. Then you are wrong. It is worse. Far worse. In God's name, what do you mean? The marks on their throats were made by Miss Lucy. But she's dead. You must be mad. Would that I were. But I go to prove what I say. Dr. Seward, dare you come with me? This morning, Professor Van Helsing and I attempted to explain to Arthur Homewood, who had now, on his father's death, become Lord Godalming, the necessity of opening Lucy Westenra's tomb. White with fury, he cried, Heavens and earth, no! Not for the white world would I consent to such a desecration! How dare you speak or even think of it! I have a duty to protect her grave from outrage, and by God I shall do it! My dear Lord Godalming, I too have a duty, a duty to others! To you, and a duty to the dead. But, Professor... I cannot at present tell you everything I know, but I beg you, I beseech you, come with us to the grave. For the sake of her you loved, for whom we have given our blood, believe me, well, you shall have proof. The 26th of September. The Western Ratum was in a churchyard near Hampstead Heath. Just before midnight, we arrived at the place and entered the vault. And opened the coffin that contained Lucy's body. It was empty. For several minutes, no one spoke a word. The silence was broken by Lord Godalming. Professor, your word is all I want. This is a mystery that goes beyond honour or dishonour. Is this your doing? I swear to you, by all that I hold sacred, I have not removed nor touched her. We came out of the vault, and the professor closed the door. He filled the crevices with a kind of putty mixed with holy water. Suddenly he pointed. Far down the avenue of yew trees, a dim white figure advanced then stopped. A ray of moonlight fell between the masses of driving clouds and showed in startling prominence a dark-haired woman dressed in the cerements of the grave. The face was obscured, for it was bent down over what we saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a sharp little cry, then the white figure moved forward again. We could now see clearly, for the moonlight still held. It was Lucy Westenra. Her sweetness turned to adamantine heartless cruelty and her purity to voluptuous wantonness. Her lips were crimson with fresh blood which dripped down and stained the white death robe. Then she saw that she was watched and gave an angry snarl like a cat caught unawares. Suddenly her eyes with an unholy light fixed upon Arthur. Her face became wreathed in a seductive smile and carelessly flinging the child to the ground, she advanced towards him speaking with a diabolical sweetness. Come to me, Arthur. Leave these others and come to me. 
My arms are hungry for you. Come and we can rest together. My husband, come. Arthur seemed under a spell and opened wide his arms. She was leaping for them when Van Helsing sprang forward and held in front of her his little golden crucifix. She recoiled from it and with a face distorted with rage dashed past him as if to enter the tomb. But she stopped, arrested by some irresistible force. Then she turned and never was seen such baffled malice on her face. Van Helsing said to Arthur, Answer me, oh my friend. Am I to proceed in my work? Do as you will, friend. Do as you will. There can be no worse horror than this. Working his way close to the tomb, the professor removed a little of the substance containing holy water from the chinks of the door and stood back. We watched in horrified amazement as the woman's body passed in through the aperture where scarce a knife blade could have gone. The professor restored the putty to the edges of the door, then lifted up the child from the ground and said... He is not much harmed. We will leave him where the police will find him and return here at sunrise. At the edge of the heath, we heard a policeman's heavy tread and placed the child in his path without being seen ourselves. We waited for the cry of discovery. Then returned to the tomb. Van Helsing said, Before we do anything, let me tell you this. The undead cannot die, but must go on age after age, adding new victims and multiplying the evils of the world. For all that die as victims of the undead become themselves undead. Arthur, my friend, it will be a blessed hand that strikes the blow that will set Lucy free. It should be yours. Go on. Tell me what I am to do. We gathered in the vault at sunrise. Van Helsing read the prayers for the dead. Arthur took a hammer and a stake of wood, the point of which he placed over the heart of the foul thing in the coffin that had taken Lucy's shape. Then he struck with all his might. <laughs> A hideous, blood-curdling screech came from the opened red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The white teeth clamped together till the lips were cut and the mouth smeared with a crimson foam. Then the writhing of the body became less. Finally, it lay still. The terrible task was over. Van Helsing laid his hand on Arthur's shoulder. Now you may kiss her on the lips. No longer is she the devil's undead. She is God's true dead, whose soul is with him. An entry in Jonathan Harker's diary on the 29th of September tells us... Two days ago, Mina and I came to stay for a while with Dr. Seward in his sanatorium at Purfleet, where he lives and works. Professor Van Helsing also was staying here with him. To my astonishment, it was adjacent to the Carfax estate, the purchase of which my firm had negotiated for Count Dracula. 
Yesterday, I paid a visit to the town of Whitby on the east coast to ascertain whether certain boxes or coffins, those, in fact, that I had seen in Castle Dracula, had been brought ashore from the derelict ship Demeter on the night of the storm, which Mina spoke of. Yes, I was told, fifty had arrived and been delivered. The greater number to the old chapel at Carfax, and the rest to addresses in Piccadilly, Mile End and Bermondsey. It was late that night before I returned. Mina Harker's journal. I must have fallen asleep waiting for Jonathan. My waking thoughts were merged into dream. The room seemed filled with swirling mist that concentrated into a pillar of cloud through the top of which the gaslight shone like a red eye. Then, as I looked, this fiery eye divided into two. And suddenly, the horror burst over me that it was thus that Jonathan had seen those awful women growing into reality in Castle Dracula. My last memory, before all became black, was of a livid white face bending over me out of the mist. When Jonathan woke me in the morning, it was hard to realize where I was. I decided to say nothing of my dream for fear of alarming him. Jonathan Harker's Journal. 1st of October. We decided to explore Carfax House, and soon after sunrise we set out. Dr. Seward, Lord Godalming, Van Helsing and myself, each taking with us a wreath of garlic and a crucifix. A skeleton key was used to unlock the door. The rusty hinges creaked as we slowly opened it and went in. The whole place was thick with dust. I had some idea of the plan of the house and led the way towards the old chapel. After a few wrong turnings, we found ourselves before a low arched door, ribbed with iron bands. We found a key that fitted, and the door swung back. There was a pungent, acrid smell of blood. Every breath exhaled by that monster seemed to have clung to the place and intensified its loathsomeness. Corruption had become itself corrupt. The first thing was to see how many boxes were here, and later on to return and destroy them. The vampire evidently intended to scatter these earth chests to hidden places so that none might know in which grave he slept. They must all be destroyed. There were twenty-nine of these boxes in the chapel. Suddenly Lord Godalming turned and looked out of the vaulted door. I looked too and for an instant thought I saw the Count's evil face, the red lips, the awful pallor. But it was only the shadows, and a strange phosphorescence twinkling like stars. Then we saw that every corner was alive with rats. They seemed to multiply in their thousands. Lord Godalming blew a shrill blast on a silver whistle that he carried. It was answered by the yelping of his three dogs from outside in the garden. And their happy barks restored our spirits as they dashed in and forced the rats into a retreat. We returned to the sanatorium. We paused for a moment outside the room where Mina lay sleeping. There came an odd sound from within. Instantly alarmed and fearful, we burst open the door. In the moonlight, kneeling on the near edge of the bed, we saw the white-clad figure of my wife. By her side stood a tall, thin man clad in black. It was Count Dracula. 
With his left hand, he held both of hers, and with his right gripped the back of her neck, forcing her face down on his bosom. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. The Count turned his face, and his eyes flamed with devilish passion. The white, sharp teeth behind the full lips of the blood-ripping mouth clamped together like those of a wild beast. He flung down his victim and sprang at us. Lifting our crucifixes, we stood our ground. He fell back with an angry cry. You think to baffle me? You with your pale faces all in a row, like sheep in a butcher's. You shall be sorry yet, each one of you. You and others shall yet be mine, my creatures to do my bidding and to be my jackals when I want to feed. The moonlight faded as a great black cloud sailed across the sky, and when the gaslight sprang up under Dr. Seward's match, we saw nothing but a faint vapor. As we moved towards Mina... She gave a scream so wild that it will ring in my ears till my dying day. Then she put before her face her poor crushed hands, which bore on their whiteness the red mark of the Count's terrible grip. And from behind them came a low, desolate wail, which made her dreadful scream seem only the quick expression of an endless grief. Dr. Seward writes on October the 5th. The destruction of the earth boxes in Carfax Chapel and in the ruined houses at Mile End and Bermondsey we accomplished without too much difficulty. Jonathan's firm of solicitors was connected with each of them and entrance to them was easy. But the house in Piccadilly was a different matter. The estate agents put every obstacle in our way. However, the name of Lord Godalming at last managed to smooth our way and we came to destroy the last of Count Dracula's graves. But there was one missing. We successfully shattered and annihilated 49 of them. Yet we had not found the body of the arch-vampire. Some other secret lair must be his daylight resting place. We returned home and told Mrs. Harker all that had passed. She clung to her husband's arm till the narration was done. Then she spoke, that sweet good woman in all her radiant beauty. Yet we saw the red wounds upon her throat. Jonathan, dear... And you, my true, true friends, I know that you must fight, that you must destroy, even as you destroyed the false Lucy, so that the true Lucy might live hereafter. But it is not a work of hate. That poor soul, the Count, who has wrought all this misery, is the saddest case of all. Just think what will be his joy when he too is destroyed in his worser part, that his better part may have spiritual immortality. It was then that Mrs. Harker gave us the answer to the intolerable frustration which we felt at our ignorance of Dracula's whereabouts. The professor should put her into an hypnotic trance in which she might disclose the information we so desperately required. This was done. And she spoke of lapping water, the creaking of a chain, voices raised and steps overhead. It was a ship. Count Dracula was escaping by sea. And where would he go but back to Transylvania? We discovered that the ship Tsarina Catherine was sailing from London docks on the next tide, bound for the Black Sea port of Varna. With the utmost speed, we hurried across Europe and arrived there before her. 
but thick fog had forced her into Galatz. This meant another long train journey, and when we reached the place, the grim cargo had been collected and taken we knew not where. But calculating that he intended to come eventually to Castle Dracula, we decided that the vampire's coffin would probably be transported most safely by water, and thence, for the last part of the journey, by gypsy cart. And so we followed, Lord Godalming and Jonathan by river, myself on horseback by the river bank, and Van Helsing with Mrs. Harker by the direct coach road. Memorandum by Abraham Van Helsing. It is cold, cold, and the grey, heavy sky is full of snow. Madame Mina sleeps and sleeps. Her hypnosis, on which we depend for our knowledge of the Count's movements, now seems more difficult. Two days' travel ever deeper into the mountains, and at last we are in sight of the castle. I make a fire and prepare supper, but Madame Mina will not eat of it. For fear of what might be, I draw a ring big enough for her comfort around where she sits. Over it, I sprinkle the holy water, and at the circumference I place the crucifix. Presently, the snow comes swirling, and with it a thick mist. It seems as if the wreaths and flurries take shape and become shadowy figures like those fearful women Jonathan described. They cry. Come to us. The terror in Madame Mina's sweet eyes and the repulsion show, God be thanked, she is not yet one of them. And so we remain within the holy ring till dawn. At sunrise, the snow had ceased falling, and leaving Mina with a gun for a protection against wolves, I made my way alone to the castle. I came to the dreaded walls and found the ruined chapel and the graveyard where the three vampires lay. I removed the earth, and they were revealed in their evil beauty. I felt drawn to them with horrible fascination, like a rabbit to the eyes of a snake. Certain it was that I was lapsing into sleep when there came through the snow still there a long, low wail, so full of woe and pity that it woke me like the sound of a clarion, for it was the voice of my dear Madame Mina that I heard. Blindly, I executed the terrible task that we had done before with Miss Lucy. Had I not seen the repose of the first face and the gladness that stole over it just ere the final dissolution came, as a realization that the soul had been one, I could not have endured the horrid screeching as the wooden stake drove home. The plunging of the writhing form. But it was done. I hurried back to Madame Mina, and I found her safe. Mina Harker's Journal. Soon after the professor's return in the late afternoon, we saw in the distance a group of peasants, perhaps gypsies, approaching with a cart which seemed to carry the very burden we sought. 
the last earth box containing Dracula's body. At the same instant, two horsemen appeared further off. It must be Jonathan and Arthur. Yes, yes, it was. And following close, but from another direction, Dr. Seward. With quick shots from their rifles, they caught the gypsies unawares and fought their way towards the cart. The gypsies attacked with knives. I saw Jonathan jump onto the cart and with a strength that seemed incredible, raise the great coffin that it carried and fling it over the wheel to the ground. But it split open to reveal the figure of Dracula. As I looked, his red eyes reflected the sinking sun, and the hate in them turned to triumph, that he would escape us again. But just before the sun disappeared behind the mountains, came the sweep and flash of Jonathan's knife. I shrieked as I saw it shear through Dracula's throat, whilst at the same moment Dr. Seward's blade plunged into the very heart. Before our very eyes, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. Yet, as it faded, there was in the face a look of peace. Come into 